The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to CMO Week on the MarTech Podcast. This week, we're talking to five CMOs to understand how they navigate their way up the corporate ladder to become some of the most prominent marketers in the world. Okay, today we're going to kick off CMO Week by learning about the skills accumulated and the lessons learned from a great marketer throughout the various stops on his career. Joining us to kick off CMO Week is the founder of CMO Coaches, Kip Knight. Kip has served in a variety of marketing and executive roles, ranging from being a CMO at Taco Bell, the VP of Marketing at eBay, and a Senior Vice President of Retail Operations at H&R Block. Outside of his role as the founder of CMO Coaches, Kip is also an operating partner at TomVest Partners and a board member of a variety of publicly traded companies. Here's our interview with CMO Coaches founder and marketing exec, Kip Knight. Kip, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Thanks, Ben. Real privilege to be on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm going to stop you right there. The privilege is all ours. It's great to have you as a sponsor of the podcast. And to start off, I appreciate you making the time and helping us get in touch with some of the most prominent marketers in the world. So incredibly excited to have you and your team on the show. Well, thanks, Ben. I appreciate it. So let's start off by telling us a little bit about what you're doing at CMO Coaches and why you started that project. Well, Ben, as you know, CMOs have the shortest life expectancy of any of the C-level officers. Typically, it runs, depending upon which source you look at, anywhere from 18 to 24 months, which compares to a CEO, which is typically in the role for five to seven years, and even CFOs, which are in the five to six-year range. So the real motivation for us doing CMO coaches is having been CMOs, we learned a lot of valuable lessons on the job training, so to speak. And we thought it would be really helpful if we could collect all that wisdom and pull it together and offer it to folks who were either currently in a CMO type role or the head of marketing, or frankly, if they're aspiring to be a CMO at some point in the future. So it's really trying to pay forward some of these folks who are going to take up the mantle of leadership on the head of marketing in these corporations and anything we can do to help make them more successful and frankly, lengthen their, their time in the job would be a reward for us. So I think that's a great lead into talking about your career and some of the experiences that you've had. And this to me serves as an example of some of the things that we might discuss in the upcoming CMO bootcamp. But let's talk a little bit about your career. Talk to me about how you got started in marketing. Well, I'm from Louisiana 
And I originally thought I was going to be a lawyer. Part of that was my favorite uncle was a quite successful lawyer in Louisiana. I had visions of maybe working for him. But a bit of a funny story as to how I got started in marketing. I was in my freshman year and thought it would be cool to go through Fraternity Rush. And I approached Fraternity Rush the same way somebody would approach a consumer reports analysis of fraternities complete with clipboard and ratings and all that other good stuff. And having not had an older brother to kind of coach me through what to do, I think I'm the only person in the history of LSU who is on the permanent blackball list of all fraternities there. I was the biggest geek they had ever come across. (laughs) It was like that scene in Animal House where the picture of the guy up on the screen and they just throw beer cans at him. I think that was Flounder. Yeah, that was Flounder. (laughs) So I floundered in my quest to get into a fraternity, but I was determined to leave my mark on LSU. So Walked down the street to the LSU Union, found out if they had any opportunities there. They happened to have a role open for speaker's chairman, which I signed up for, and had my first speaker's chairman meeting. And man, it was packed. I had like a dozen people showing up, and I was really uh, impressed that that many people would want to help out. And unbeknownst to me, they were all Trekkies. They loved Star Trek. And I didn't know anything about Star Trek at the time, but they were determined to bring Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, to LSU. And by the end of that first meeting, they had me so convinced that this was a big idea. I signed up not only to bring Gene Roddenberry to campus and have him speak at the 2,000-seat auditorium, but they convinced me that I could fill up the entire 24,000-seat assembly center with this event. So I went to my advisor. I told her my big vision. She told me I was insane. Nobody had ever done that. Besides, we didn't have any marketing money. And I basically pledged that I'll either fill the stadium up or you can find another speaker's chairman. And at that point, I had a bit of a crisis in terms of what do I do next? So I went down the road to the local TV station airing the Star Trek reruns, told them they had an exclusive opportunity to be the sole sponsor of the Gene Roddenberry speech that was going to take place. Thank God they bought it. They started airing TV commercials for the event. They had posters. We had radio spots. We did the full event. And I'm pleased to say that we had a 24,000 sellout crowd show up that night. And as a bonus, Gene Roddenberry announced the first Star Trek movie. So we even made it to the national news. So (laughs) I had a bit of a religious awakening that night. I decided this was for me and I've never looked back. I've always thought that marketing was my sweet spot and have enjoyed every minute of it ever since. Here's the thing that I appreciate from your story in terms of the marketing strategy is that you went to where your customers already were, like going to where people are running Star Trek reruns. That's the direct path to people that are going to be interested in Star Trek. And that's one of the things that I've talked a lot about on this podcast in terms of how we've built our show is we try to advertise on podcasts because that's where podcast listeners already are. So I appreciate the strategy from your early days. As your career started outside of your work at LSU, what roles did you take on? And tell us a little bit about the early parts of your career and how that shaped the foundation of you as a marketer. Well, at LSU, I ended up as president of the student union. So at a very young age, I was given a lot of responsibility. I had a team of a couple of hundred people. We had a budget of at least 20 or $30 million. I mean, we had all these various acts come through town that we'd make big money off of, like the Rolling Stones and Bruce Springsteen and such. And we'd use that to subsidize the Bolshoi Ballet and Cleveland Symphony and a lot of other events. So at a very early age, I got a taste of managing large teams and budgets and making things happen. That led me to my first marketing job at Berg Marketing Research. If I could give any tip for anybody considering marketing, I would say anything that you can do to get into a role in which you 
listen and respond to the voice of the customer. Absolutely do that. It gives you a really good grounding. After a couple of years of doing the marketing research bit, I decided I didn't want to write the report. I wanted to implement the recommendation. So got into Procter & Gamble and brand management. It's been about 10 years. I still consider to be one of the best postgraduate marketing institutions around. They put a high premium on training since they promote from within and had the opportunity at Procter to really learn a lot of the fundamentals in terms of both new product launches as well as growing existing products. Essentially, what you're saying is that you started off more on the agency side, you were, you were doing some research, and as you moved into Procter & Gamble, you started building the foundation and understanding of a brand development strategy, right? That seems to be the core competence of P&G is understanding brand development as a marketer. Oh, absolutely. And what they do is they take those insights and then they go to their R&D teams and say, okay, what if we could develop the following improvement in this product? Or what if we could invent a brand new product entirely? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. One of the things I did at Procter that was very entertaining and insightful and frankly, a bit tragic was I was the first and only marketing person to work on Olestra, the zero calorie fat replacement. The family program. We're not going to go into the details of that, but <laughs> sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But the most important thing you've got to do is continually go back and understand, to your point, what is the consumer really telling us? What are they asking for? What would really satisfy their needs and wants? Right. Just to fill in the blanks for anybody who isn't familiar with Alestra, that was, you mentioned a fat replacement product, but essentially it created some significant digestive problems for people who consumed it. Yeah. It doesn't sound like that was a marketing problem. It sounds like that was a product problem. Yeah. And they got better over time, but frankly, all you needed is a small percentage of the folks to have that issue. And let's just say it didn't help you from a PR point of view. That's for sure. Well, you know, we all have our wins and losses in our career. Yeah. And you sounds like you stayed at Procter & Gamble beyond that. What are some of the other projects that you worked on and experiences you gained? Well, I worked on a number of brands. I worked on Bounce Fabric Software when it was first being launched. That was a lot of fun. We actually came up with a way of inserting bounce samples inside publisher clearinghouse envelopes. So you can imagine how much fun that was for the post office and dealing with the perfumes and all that other good stuff. Worked on the Spick and Span brand, which might sound boring, but my claim to fame there was we had our 75th anniversary celebration of Spick and Span in which we put real and fake diamonds inside the product. But you put real diamonds inside the product? Yeah, yeah. We were challenged by our boss at the time who said, I do not want to see any more price packs from you guys. It's boring. So give me something that's going to make me say, wow. So we did a little bit of research. Since it was our 75th diamond anniversary, we discovered that you could buy a fake diamond for about a dime and put it in with a real diamond. So I think we went out and bought something like 250,000 fake diamonds and 1,000 real ones, mixed them all together, put them in the box, and then did a tie-in with the National Jewelers Association so that you could figure out whether or not you had a real or a fake diamond. And given that it was in February... The PR was go buy your sweetie some roses, a box of chocolates, and a box of spick and span with a diamond. So I had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> I love it. So it sounds like you got a wide variety of consumer products experience at Procter & Gamble, and eventually you moved on to PepsiCo. So what was the reason for moving on from P&G after spending roughly 10 years? Wanted to work international. And ironically, at the time, they didn't think Americans would do very well overseas, which I think they've changed their mind on since. But I pushed for a number of years to work internationally and which is just told no, no, no. So I finally decided, well, PepsiCo will definitely let me work internationally. And they did. 
one of the things I've been really pleased with in my career is the opportunity to work in a wide variety of countries. I kept count and I've worked in a total of 64 different countries around the world on various brands and businesses. And for anybody who loves a huge challenge, I would say doing something internationally after you've created a base of skills in the States is the way to go. I thoroughly learned a lot in every one of the markets I was in, and I was able to reapply a lot of those learnings in the new markets I went to. So when you were at PepsiCo, first off, where did you work? You said you went international. Where was the role? Well, it was with KFC International, which when I first started was a relatively small business. But one of the things that they were thinking about at the time was opening up in China. And from a success point of view, even though I had a very small part to do with it, I'd say the success of KFC China is nothing but phenomenal. It's a multi-billion dollar business over there. It's so big that they spun it off from what ultimately became Yum! Brands. And every bit is successful and well-known over there as McDonald's. So I uh, worked with uh, KFC for the 10 years that I was with International over there, worked and opened up markets. I think I lost count. I probably opened up KFC in about a dozen different markets, including China, as well as helped launch a number of new products and grew a number of established businesses, including a number of those in Europe. So tell me a little bit more about what you learned from your international experience that has shaped you as a marketer and dictates how you think about connecting a customer to your products? Well, Ben, I think the most valuable lesson I learned is, believe it or not, America does not have a monopoly on good ideas. Every country in the world has got really smart people that are working on various businesses. And if you're humble enough to go in there and listen and see what they've done and figure out a way to apply that to other markets, then you have an unlimited source of both test markets and inspiration. And it also makes the team feel like they're truly a team. The biggest mistake I've seen international marketers make is that they somehow think being an American or being from the States gives them some special authority or permission to do whatever they want. And that's typically a recipe for disaster. The successful folks that I've seen that have done well in international going there, we're seeking to understand with a real open agenda and being very humble and willing to ask a lot of questions. And make these people feel like they've got a seat at the table as opposed to you're telling them what they're going to do next. So that's interesting. It comes up to a couple of things that I'm realizing are traits of successful marketers. And the first one is the ability to listen and synthesize information from multiple sources. And not only being able to work with the team internationally, obviously not thinking that you are the expert in a field that you don't have a lot of experience in. I understand how that could rub people the wrong way, but also the ability to go and find and listen to your customers and understand what their needs are seems to be a central theme of what makes a great marketer someone that is willing and capable of listening, digesting, and synthesizing information. That's absolutely true. And I learned that in a number of different markets. And again, I've seen the opposite side of that. I've seen a lot of people flame out because if they walk into a situation tone deaf and arrogant, then there's so many different ways that people can make you go away. They've got the advantage of their own local culture, their own local language, their own local habits. So you better approach new opportunities like that with a sense of both curiosity and appreciation because people are smart. They can figure out whether or not you respect them or not. And if you don't go there with mutual respect, then the relationship's going to get off to a really bad start, probably not end well. That makes a lot of sense. Tell me about how when you've seen people that are being tone deaf, I doubt anybody intends to do that. But for people that are looking to self-regulate, how do you suggest that they think about whether they are being overly egotistical, whether they're not listening, whether they're being tone deaf? Where's the check and balance there? 
Well, let me tell you a quick story as to what brought this to life for me. I went over to London to head up the European KFC marketing effort, but my specific task was to turn around the UK business, which had been around for about 30 years. It was in big trouble. Frankly, they said the reason they gave you the bucket was a convenient device to throw up in after you'd eaten the food because we basically drunk men. <laughs> I mean, it was really bad. Yeah. And it was primarily a franchise system. So I went and made my pitch after being there for about a month to the UK franchise group. If they did not endorse what I wanted to do in marketing, I was basically a dead man walking. So I gave my best pitch. I painted a vision of creating family meals. We had this thing called a family feast. We also had a vision for signature premium sandwiches. It was going to be wonderful. So I give my pitch. I go out and wait. I wait. I wait. After about an hour, the head of the franchise group comes out and says, okay, look, we're going to support you, but I need to tell you something. The only reason we're going to support you is we like you. But if you ever come into this meeting again and act like an arrogant jerk that thinks that he's got all the answers, we're not going to do anything because we've worked 30 years to build this business. And frankly, even though it's not perfect, it is your business and it's what you got you this far. And boy, have I remembered that lesson ever since then. You've got to show respect for what people have done before you. Even if it's not perfect, you've got to respect the fact that they've gotten you this far. And if you can make it better, great. But you've got to start out with the respect and humility to let them know what you're thinking. It's funny how the relationships with your team dictate your success in marketing. You know, it's an understanding of who the customers are, but also building solid relationships with the team to actually execute them. Which actually leads me to my next point and your next career stop where you went from Yum Brands, the international, to become the CMO of Taco Bell. Is Taco Bell a brand within the Yum family? I would say it's the crown jewel of Yum Brands. The Yum Brands includes both Pizza Hut, KFC, and Taco Bell, but Taco Bell has been the fastest growing and the most exciting part of their portfolio. I still love Taco Bell. I think it's one of the most exciting brands out there. Time for a one-minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Well, the advertising landscape has changed since then, and instead of reaching your audience on two channels, you're probably reaching them on 20. Turns out John didn't know how easy he had it. But that doesn't mean that you should give up on striving towards marketing effectiveness. No matter how complex your marketing strategy is, Mutinex Growth OX is the market mix modeling platform that measures the impact of marketing on your bottom line. Mutinex's market mix modeling platform calibrates your insights against the latest market conditions so you can make media and marketing investment decisions confidently and quickly. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, your best decision starts here. To learn more about Mutinex, go to mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Okay, here's the rest of today's interview. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost-effective. Request a demo at mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. So this is your first time in the chief marketing officer role. 
Tell me about what the experience was like in your first role as a CMO, and how did that differ from being director and vice president? It was both the most exciting and terrifying part of my career because you get to drive the ship. You were in charge of, at the time, I think it was about a quarter of a billion dollar marketing budget. I'm sure it's much bigger now. You've got a team of 80 or 90 professional marketers. You've got some of the best agencies in the world, including Shite Day, the same folks that worked on the Apple Macintosh campaign, Lee Cloud. He was our creative. So it was an enormous responsibility. But it also made you quickly realize how vulnerable you were because if the business does not perform, the first one they go looking for is the CMO. And again, I want to be totally transparent in terms of my time at Taco Bell. I was in the role for about two years, but at the end, I ended up getting fired because the numbers were not what they needed to be. And that kind of takes me back to the CMO coaches. I think if there had been somebody there who could have coached me through some of the corporate political aspects of the job, also making sure you understand the role of various parties, such as your CEO and the franchisees and the board and all that, I'm not saying that I would have lasted another five years in the role, but I probably could have been more successful in terms of making my bets and making my alliances. Because if you are not both politically savvy and strategically smart, I think you've got a real challenge succeeding in what I think is one of the most high-pressured jobs in corporate America. Let's talk a little bit more about that. You've basically said that there was strategic decisions There's your corporate alliances, your intercompany relationships, and I'm assuming that there's probably some external factors, the overall landscape that affect your success as a CMO. Looking back on the role, what would you have done differently? Would you have picked a different strategy, focused more on building relationships, or was it purely market conditions weren't great and you were doomed to start? Well, one of the challenges I had is I had a good friend of mine who was my boss, who was also the CEO, but he got fired about one year into the mission that I was there on. And the new CEO came in, and even though I tried to form a relationship there, he was a former marketer. So having a CEO as a former marketer and you're the CMO, that's a tough hand to deal with. But the biggest lesson learned on that, and again, that I would pass along to other aspiring CMOs, is you've really got to align with your boss in terms of expectations. CEOs are under tremendous financial pressure. As you know, Ben, if you miss your quarterly earnings estimate by as low as a penny, all of a sudden it's Armageddon in the stock market, and the stock falls off the table. And it's a shame that that is the way that the game is played, but that is the way the game is played. So If your boss has a better understanding as to what you can and can't deliver, and you can have that established at the beginning of your relationship, I think your odds of success go up dramatically. Because if your boss, your CEO, or the board is expecting 10% growth, and you think on a great day you can get three, then coming out of the gate, you're in big trouble, and you're not in a good place as far as trying to manage expectations. So you've got to work really hard up front on the alignment. I think that's great advice. And the thing that occurs to me is looking at your LinkedIn profile, it looks like you took a little time off between being the CMO of Taco Bell and your next role. Careers are a marathon, not a sprint. Tell me about what you decided to do after leaving Taco Bell and how and when did you decide to get into your next role? I actually started Night Vision Marketing after I left Taco Bell because, frankly, we were in a bit of a recession at that point, didn't know how long I'd be looking, interviewed at a number of different companies, finally landed at eBay, which one other lesson I learned on that that I would pass along to marketers is do not get discouraged. I was miscongeniality in about a dozen jobs that I went after. 
And lucky number 13 was the eBay role. And the eBay job made a huge difference to me, both financially and from a learning perspective, because I had to learn a whole different set of skills and tools and category and whatnot. So it was a tough 18 months. I was trying to see what I could do, both on a consulting perspective, as well as looking for the next gig. But it ultimately paid off. And I know it's very discouraging at times. You also learn who your true friends are during a time like that. So the other bit of advice I would give to anybody is, if you know of anybody out there that is in that situation and searching, anything you can do to reach out and just let them know you're available as a resource means an enormous benefit to them when they're in their darkest hour. So been there, done that. I try to help people out on a regular basis that are looking for their next gig. And if you've ever been through it, you're probably going to do the same. You know, when I left my last role and I started my consulting practice, you were very gracious with your time. So I could attest publicly that you not only are saying that it's great to help people out when they're in their time of need, when they're looking, but you helped me not only give advice and encouragement, but also think about how to put a consulting practice together. And I've been doing it for roughly three years and now am working on the podcast as a result of that. So I not only appreciate what you're saying, but from a personal perspective, appreciate the effort that you've put into helping other people build their relationships, myself included. Well, I appreciate that. And it's really rewarding to be able to help people like yourself out because we're only on this planet for a short amount of time. So to the extent we can leave some people behind that are doing some good work, that's what it's all about. At the end of the day, the money doesn't come with you, but it's nice while we're here. Let's talk about your career when we worked together at eBay. What was your role? And you mentioned that you had to learn a new industry and a new type of business. You're moving away from consumer goods into technology. What was that transition like? That was an incredible opportunity because eBay at the time was about as hot as Facebook was up until recently. It was the company to be at. So enormous growth, triple-digit growth, expanding into a number of different markets. And then from a personal perspective, I started to do a little bit of a pivot. Ever since then, I've had a role of both marketing and general management jobs, and I've gone back and forth. So for example, at eBay, I was VP of marketing for a period of time, but I was also for a period of time regional VP in charge of, get this, Latin America, Canada, Taiwan, and Australia. I think I counted it up one time in like 13 time zones I had responsibility for. Doesn't sound like you're sleeping much. Frankly, the adrenaline will get you through a lot of... I truly do love international and it was really exciting to help open up a lot of these new markets. But one other insight is that to the extent that you're a marketer and you have the opportunity to get into a general management role, even if you want to eventually come back to marketing, do it because you will be a much, much better marketer if you've worn a different functional hat for a period of time. And you'll also, frankly, be able to communicate more with CEOs and CFOs if you've kind of walked them all in their shoes and then gone back to a marketing role. I think maybe the most valuable career experience I've had was stepping away from working as a marketer while I was at eBay to run a startup, which obviously it's not at a publicly traded company, but what the value of that for me was having to put on the founder or the CEO hat. It's not really a CEO for the size of the company that I was working on, but you had to understand finance, operation, product, all these other facets. And at the end of the day, it turns out I was just better at marketing than anything else and went back into marketing. But I totally hear what you're saying. So you at eBay started off in international marketing, took on a marketing role. Tell me a little bit more about your reason to get into a general management role. 
In terms of general management, having had a taste of that both back at LSU when I was president of the student union, as well as when I was in brand management, which is a general manager type role at Procter, I really did enjoy the ability to manage the entire business, including P&L. So I jumped at that opportunity and I continue to do those types of general management roles ever since eBay. So as you look back on your time at eBay, what were your takeaways and what was the reason why you decided to move on from the organization? At eBay, I think the biggest thing I learned is that you can take lessons learned in a variety of different categories and apply them to new categories, new opportunities, new countries. I think I've probably had one of the more unusual careers. I mean, think about it. I've sold soap. I've sold fried chicken. I've sold tacos. You've snuck diamonds into people's giveaways. <laughs> yeah, I've sold diamonds and I've done e-commerce. And then I went on to sell tax services. And somebody might look at that and go, I don't see any rhyme or reason there. But the fundamental principles of marketing are true, no matter which category, no matter which country you're in. And I think one of the advantages that much variety gave me was I walked into every situation with a totally different perspective, I guarantee you, than anybody who'd spent their entire career in a particular category. So another tip I would give to any aspiring marketers is if you have the opportunity to mix it up and go to a different function or go to a different country or go work in a different category, by all means, take it because you got to be careful not to fall into a bit of a rut and just second verse, same as the first over and over and over you're going to really limit your thinking and limit your possibilities. So go for the variety. It's really worked out well for me. It makes sense that you've had a diverse set of experience and that the underlying skill set led you sort of, you started off in general management, specialized in marketing. And as your career developed, you essentially worked your way back into general management with the mindset of a marketer. Eventually, you moved on from eBay onto H&R Block, where you spent the last few years. Tell me about what your role was there and how did your skills as a marketer help you excel in more of a general management role? I spent about six years at H&R Block. I was president of the U.S. retail business for about three years. It was a big organization. We hired 80,000 tax pros during the season. We had about 10,000 offices, did a couple of billion dollars for the business. My primary insight in that role, having been a marketer, was once again going back to listen and understand what the consumer wants. Everybody assumes that because there is now online software, everybody's going to want to do their taxes that way. But that is absolutely not true. You had a large number, in fact, still about half the folks that say, I don't want to fool with this. I want somebody else to do it for me. And really making sure people understood that we were there to help them out. We guaranteed our work. We went above and beyond what was expected. Again, that's a marketing perspective. You're not just providing a service, you're providing experience. And ultimately, you're trying to provide peace of mind because the old thing about death and taxes, well, people freak out over taxes on a continual basis. And of all the emotional rewards I had and everything that I did, I would say working at H&R Block was the greatest because if you could literally have somebody walk into an office freaking out and worried and scared and walk out of there feeling relaxed and confident and sure that they've got the right answers and they're not going to have a problem with the IRS, that feels pretty darn good. Definitely a problem for a lot of people. As you mentioned, death and taxes are things you can't avoid, but you can really only get help with your taxes. That's true. Eventually, you decided to move on from H&R Block, and now you're working as a board of director, you're helping to give back to the marketing community with CMO coaches, and you're working with the Tom Vest Ventures as an operating partner. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing today. 
Yeah, well, I got exposed about 10 years ago to uh, TomVest. It's about a $300 million VC fund, what they call an evergreen fund. One individual, Peter Thompson, whose family owns Thompson Reuters, is the founder and banker, so to speak. The VC world's fascinating. It's something I plan to be involved in for the rest of my days because it keeps you fresh. You have to always find out what's new. And they specialize in a couple of areas such as cybersecurity and fintech. And that's been a lot of fun. And I've learned a lot from that. On the board front, I am on the board of 511 Tactical, which is the world's largest tactical clothing company. Again, if you ever want to be like James Bond or the like, they've got really cool clothing. They sell a pair of pants that has 23 pockets inside. Sounds like a nightmare if you need to find your keys. (laughs) Well, the 23rd pocket is they have a little pocket inside your cuff that you can put a trunk key in so that if you ever get kidnapped and thrown in a trunk, you can reach down in your cuff and pop trunk lid and get out. So... Perfect. And then CMO Coaches is the entrepreneurial thing I'm doing now. We've talked about that a bit. We're just now getting underway. But having talked to some of my marketing colleagues like Gary Briggs or Mike Linton, they've had fabulous careers. They've learned a lot. And I think the one thing that really drives us forward on trying to do this is, like I mentioned before, if I had somebody I could talk to who'd been there, done that, and can give me some tips on how do you manage your CEO boss, how do you manage a board, how do you deal with political situations, that would have been really invaluable. And it's something that we hope we can do in the upcoming year and three years to come. As you reflect back on what now is a 30-some-odd-year career What do you take away from your experience as a marketer? And what are the key takeaways that you can pass on to the listeners that they need to think about to succeed in our industry? I'd make two observations. First, I think there's a real risk of marketers becoming overly specialized. Having started out at Procter & Gamble and really been forced to be a generalist and learn the fundamentals. I've got a son who's in marketing who's really, really good at it, online advertising. But More and more of these marketing professions are becoming very, very, very narrow in focus. And one of the things I would encourage any marketer to do is just force yourself to helicopter up, make sure that you're taking in the big picture, you're trying to get as much strategic insights and fundamental training on thinking about the big picture as you possibly can, because you've got to see how the whole picture moves together. So that would be the first insider reflection that I would have. And the second one is, what was that group talking about schools out for the summer, schools out forever? Well, schools never out for marketers. I would say that marketers are maybe up there with CIOs as far as the most rapidly changing profession. You do not ever get to kick back and relax in marketing. There is always something you've got to go back to school on. And I've always subscribed to the idea of lifetime learning. This podcast is a good example of that. So I would encourage all marketers and frankly, non-marketers to continually be looking at the horizon in terms of what is out there in terms of consumer insights, being able to relate to consumers more, being able to reach out and identify and connect with target audiences and really understand whether or not you're fulfilling their needs and if not different and innovative ways that you can do that. I appreciate what you're talking about in the sense of there's always something new in marketing. It's one of the reasons why we're able to create this podcast is that the methodologies, the technologies, the marketing mix and the channels are always rotating. Facebook is the biggest performance marketing channel on the planet and Google. Those are the hot button digital marketing channels today. They won't be in 10 years. There's always going to be something different. And as a marketer, understanding who your customer is, what their needs are, and being able to communicate it, that process feels very much the same to me and doesn't change 
but then how you actually turn your marketing into advertising and get someone through your conversion funnel changes over time constantly. And to me, that's the exciting part about marketing, because as you've seen, Ben, the profession has become more and more analytical and data-driven. And the ability to do A-B testing, the ability to experiment with various variables. You know, marketing is part art and part science, but I would say that that's the fun part. That's where you get to take your creativity and analytical mind, blend them together, and hopefully come up with something better. Well, Kip, I appreciate you walking us through your career. I appreciate you helping us get connected to the CMO coaches. And I'm excited to be in attendance for the CMO boot camp. Again, that's starting on the 20th. And I hope some of the people that are listening to the show will consider coming to it. And thank you for being a guest on our show. Ben, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. And let's have a great 2019. Absolutely. Okay, that wraps up this episode of CMO Week on the MarTech Podcast. Thanks again to Kip Knight for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Kip, you can find his LinkedIn profile in the link on our show notes, or you can send him a tweet at Kip Knight, K-I-P-K-N-I-G-H-T. If you're a subscriber to the MarTech Podcast, thanks for being a member of our community. We always want to hear from you, so we created benjshap.com slash question, where you can send us your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media as well. My handle is benjshap, that's B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a weekly stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we've got some great episodes lined up for you over the rest of the week, including other special guests from our friends at CMO Coaches. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.